This kind of talk is going to discuss intelligence, strategic and international law implications relating to the grey zone and cyber operations. Noting Russia's activities against the Ukraine have been consistent since 2014 and are often cited as the most, most prevalent recent example of cyber operations in the grey zone, in light of recent world events, what do these actions mean for future conflict or broader strategy? This morning, we're talking with Professor Andrew Phillips, Miss Catherine Manstead and Colonel Penny Saltry, and I'm Dr. Lauren Sanders. Andrew Phillips from the UQ School of Political Science and International Studies, who will explain what grey zone operations are and how they affect international relations. Professor Phillips is an expert in international relations, terrorism, international security and war, and he's published and lectured widely in all of these fields. His expertise is in international political frameworks, focusing on the use of force by states. Following Professor Phillips' take on the um, on the what, we'll be hearing from Colonel Penny Saltry from Defence Legal, who'll be discussing the rules talking about legal frameworks and challenges associated with both cyber operations and operations in the grey zone, covering the why from a legal perspective. Colonel Saltry is an Army Legal Corps officer who has extensive Army and Joint experience, including operational deployments to Iraq, Timor-Leste and Afghanistan, and has worked on both national as well as coalition headquarters. Her most recent postings have included Director Operations and Security Law, Chief Legal Officer to the Chief of Army, and the Senior Legal Advisor for the Joint Operations Command. We have Catherine Manstead, who holds the position of Senior Fellow in the Practice of National Security at the Australian National University National Security College, and is a Director of Cyber Intelligence at Australia's largest independent cyber security services company. She's previously led the ANU National Security College's public policy team and has lectured in and published widely in this area at Bond University, Harvard, and given evidence before parliamentary committee. A quick reminder that this is an unclassified discussion and all of our questions and responses will be based on open source and publicly available information. Andrew, if you could kick us off, please, with what is meant by the term the grey zone and how do uh, grey zone operations affect international relations? Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lauren, for the opportunity to present to the Cove. And thank you to everyone who is listening to this presentation. I'd like to do three things in my presentation. The first is to provide a brief conceptual overview of these concepts of hybrid war and activities. The second thing I'd like to do is to briefly canvas some of their applications, particularly in the post-Soviet space, uh, in particular with respect to Crimea in 2014 and with the ongoing activities that culminated in the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. And finally, I'd like to pose two provocations that I hope will um, help to stimulate some of our thinking and discussion about hybrid warfare, uh, which I'll just preview now. The first is the question of how new is hybrid warfare? And the second is the question of the degree to which it potentially systematically favours authoritarian over democratic states. But to begin with looking at this concept of hybrid war and more broadly the notion of grey zone activities, um, these are concepts that really entered into the Western strategic lexicon from the mid-2000s onwards to capture a style of organised coercion that uh, possessed a number of key characteristics. The first of these is that it was a multi-domain form of coercion that did not necessarily privilege the kinetic form of warfare, but rather focused on a number of other levers of strategic coercion that states could potentially use against their adversaries. These included, for example, the systematic use of information warfare in order to destabilize the unity of a target state and to undermine its ability to resist subsequent efforts at armed coercion. 
the use of cyber warfare as a means of not only uh, destruction, but in particular disruption, uh, destabilizing the viability of critical infrastructure and weakening a target again, both as a source of chronic instability and also in the immediate prelude to a kinetic attack. And also a range of other expedients that in particular we see Vladimir Putin's Russia has been extremely deft in exploiting. Among these, for example, the use of targeted propaganda and information warfare to mobilize so-called fifth elements, that is diaspora constituencies that could be used to support um, a targeted attack on a, uh, on, on a home state. The key elements, though, in terms of thinking about hybrid warfare and grey zone activities more generally, and the way that I'll distinguish it, what you'll see in the literature is that these terms are often used interchangeably. Uh, my understanding is that grey zone activities are something that states can do on a day-to-day -day basis. This is a chronic form of malevolent assault that operates below the threshold of armed conflict. That is, it typically operates below the level at which it would um, warrant and justify a state retaliating in a kinetic fashion, and sometimes even operating below the detection threshold as well. But it is a set of targeted efforts that are used in order to chip away at the will and capacity of an adversary to resist coercion. Conversely, hybrid war, and again, um, the distinction that I am making is a temporal distinction that many would potentially challenge. But my argument would be that grey zone activities are part of the chronic destabilisation and bullying that a state can undertake in order to soften an adversary. They're multi-domain and they're typically engaged in as a means of, um, if you like, a shaping operation. Conversely, hybrid war. My understanding of hybrid war is that this is really when the rubber hits the road, where you're still operating at a multi-domain level, you're still using information operations, you're still using cyber in order to destabilise critical infrastructure, you're still potentially using plausibly deniable proxies in a low-level subconventional kinetic capacity, but you're doing so in the prelude and in the lead-up to um, a kinetic assault. So in this sense, hybrid warfare is really at the sharp end of grey zone activities. And once you're in the hybrid warfare space, you're getting above the level of the detection threshold and you're getting to a position, as we saw in February, March of 2014, where limited kinetic efforts um, did see Russia successfully annex the Crimean Peninsula. So that is my way of definition. Um, and the reason that I have been um, annoyingly ambiguous as academics want to do is because this remains a subject of deep dispute and contestation within the literature whether we even need a distinction between grey zone and hybrid activity, um, what range of activities it potentially encompasses. But what I would suggest is that we're looking again at multi-domain forms of coercion that fall below the threshold of armed conflict. Um, and I approach this through a very Clausewitzian lens and are intended specifically to chip away at the will of an adversary to resist the uh, hybrid war actors' uh, target demands. So moving on to where we have seen this in action. And if we look at the way in which the discussion on hybrid war has evolved, um, what is notable is that it is very much focused on the post-Soviet space. There is an interesting niche literature that is now looking at the way in which China is using gray zone activities in order to expand its sphere of influence in literal East Asia. And I'm happy to speak to that in Q&A. But a large part of the discussion is focused very much on the activities of 
the Russian Federation. And what's notable when we see the language of hybrid war is that this was really um, this really acquired a degree of traction when the um, head of the general staff, and now the head of the general staff in Russia, Gerasimov, uh, coined what has been erroneously described as the Gerasimov Doctrine, as if you like a blueprint for coercion. And essentially, the argument went here that it, this is a situation in which you are able to coerce a target state through a staged process of serial and cumulative aggression, operating only above the level of kinetic conflict right at the very apex, right at the very end of this sequence of events. So if you'll imagine the, the analogy here would be, if you like that kind of classic story of boiling a frog, that you've got a targeted state. And the idea behind this is to use a series of acts of provocation. So targeted information operations to mobilize local domestic constituencies that might be sensitive to your message, um, to engage in a variety of activities targeting critical infrastructure at various periods of time to create a sense of chaos and dysfunctionality that will undermine the local political authority. To eventually infiltrate forces potentially um, associated with organised crime elements, but often simply uh, in the case of Crimea in 2014, the Little Green Men actually were Spetsnaz Russian forces that were operating uh, without wearing conventional uniform that were able to go in there and create a degree of instability on the ground in order to secure their outcome. So what's notable with the Gerasimov Doctrine is that this was actually an idea that Gerasimov was uh, looking at what the West had done with the colour revolutions in the post-Soviet space and said, well, the West has actually been engaging in a form of hybrid grey area coercion designed to chip away at the authority of uh, Russia in its post-Soviet clients and to do so in order to expand Western influence. So as much as we often see this as being the product of Vladimir Putin or Gerasimov, the Russian masterminds coming up with this as a novel form of conflict, in fact, they were actually in their own minds seeking to riff off what they saw as a new form of Western uh, aggression below the level of armed conflict in order to secure and advance their objectives. That may be kind of the interesting backstory in terms of how we get to hybrid war and grey area activities. But what's notable is that we've seen very ambiguous evidence of their effects in uh, Ukraine, Crimea from the period 2014 to 2022. Now, if I'd been uh, presenting to you a year ago, I would have been far more pessimistic uh, in as much as the Crimean, the seizure of the Crimean Peninsula in March 2014 seemed to look like a textbook case of how you can use hybrid war and grey area, grey zone activities in order to target and weaken an isolated adversary with a view to achieving limited revisionist territorial annexation goals. Because there is certainly very strong evidence that across the entire spectrum, across every domain, whether it was cyber, whether it was information operations, whether it was cultivating uh, pliable Russophone constituencies within the Crimean Peninsula, that very clearly the Russian Federation uh, was undertaking hybrid war activity in order to achieve a limited objective. However, I'll revisit one of the central concepts that I've introduced about hybrid war and grey zone activities. Um, if we look at it this through a Clausewitzian lens, yes, it's operating across multiple domains, but it is 
essentially focused on the view of chipping away at the resolve and coherence and unity of effort of an adversary in order to make them more susceptible to coercion. So what we saw in the period from 2014 to 2022, both in the frozen conflict in the Donbass region, but also more generally in Russia's orientation towards Ukraine, was a systematic effort to continue to apply grey zone activities as a means of chipping away and undermining the sovereignty and authority and capacity to resist of the Ukrainian government. So when Vladimir Putin in February 2022 announced his special operation in Ukraine, this was seen very much as intending to be a capstone and replication of the successful hybrid war campaign that had seen Crimea uh, conquered almost without a shot being fired back in 2014. The expectation of Putin, of course, was very much frustrated. And I think this is really an illustration of the limits of hybrid war and grey zone activities as a means of coercing uh, an adversary that actually is capable of being able to mobilise nationalism as a means of pushing back. So what I've tried to do there is just very briefly touch upon two illustrations to suggest that grey zone activities and hybrid war are undeniably important and sorry, important and integral aspects of contemporary strategic competition, uh, but we shouldn't necessarily see them as being either overly novel or as necessarily being a silver bullet that necessarily favours um, an adversary that has uh, more permissive rules of engagement than uh, liberal democracies. So what I'd like to do in my remaining three minutes is just to really touch upon those provocations that I foreshadowed initially. The first of those is the question of how new is hybrid war and how new are grey zone activities? Because what I'd like to suggest is that if we're thinking about the idea of um, engaging in multi-domain coercion at a level that is short of war but is intended to weaken an adversary as a prelude to a kinetic attack, there is ample evidence that this has in fact been a part particularly of imperial statecraft for centuries. There is very strong evidence. I mean, if we look again, taking Russia as an example, Russia first annexed Crimea as part of a wide-ranging expansion back in 1783, and it involved the initial cultivation of proxies, the use of targeted propaganda to mobilise and weaken the resolve of the adversary carnates that they were expanding against. So what has really changed and what has been distinctive, and here I defer to my fellow panellists here, in terms of the revolutionary character of the shifts that this has inaugurated. But what's really changed is the emergence of cyber as a distinct domain with no historical precedence um, as a new uh, vehicle through which hybrid war and great area activities can be undertaken. Um, and I will concede from the outset that my two fellow panellists have much greater expertise on this. Um, but if you were to make a case that hybrid war and grey zone activities have become much more revolutionary in their significance, then cyber would be the place to look. The second thing that I would just want to lead into is just as a, as a provocation to get you thinking, but hopefully to also nourish discussion on the panel itself, um, is the degree to which hybrid war and grey zone activities potentially favour authoritarian states. There is no doubt that China or Russia, because they are authoritarian states, they have more permissive rules of engagement, they are able to engage in sustained 
uh, offensive cyber and information operations in a way that is not something that would be easily squareable with democratic states. That said, it really behooves us to then think about, well, what are the ways in which democratic states might be able to respond to this? Um, and this is where I'd be very keen, um, very, very keen to looking forward to hearing from the Colonel on this, because one of the key questions that was initially raised was, is an institution like NATO with the Article 5 requirement that there be evidence of armed attack to warrant uh, collective security provisions kicking in, well, to what extent does a cyber attack or a targeted information attack uh, potentially cross that threshold and warrant a response? My intuition, particularly looking at Russia's failures in Ukraine at the moment, is that hybrid war isn't the silver bullet that necessarily always favours an adversary authoritarian state, but authoritarian states do nevertheless have a certain degree of uh, permissiveness in their degree to resort to these strategies that does for, uh, place very important imperatives on the West to seek to adapt our legal and um, military capabilities in order to respond accordingly. And on that note, thank you very much for listening, and I defer now to my fellow panellists. Thank you. Really great narrative there, Andrew. Thank you very much. And uh, if you think that academics are challenging, then you should try being a lawyer in an ops room in the middle of a war fight. Anyway, um, thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you to Lauren. And thank you also to the listeners to join dialing in today. And hopefully um, what you'll uh, walk away from my segment of the panel discussion is a little bit better understanding of the legal framework that applies to the conduct of grey zone activities um, and particularly cyber operations. So my assessment is that the legal framework is probably one of the single biggest challenges for the ADF when thinking about grey zone activities. Uh, and let me explain why using a pyramid of the three layers of interaction between states, which some of you in the audience may already be familiar with. So I'll describe that first. At the base is uh, the largest layer, and that is cooperation, where states work willingly together to achieve usually outcomes that are mutually beneficial to their national interests. The next layer, which is smaller than that of cooperation, is that of competition, where states compete against each other to achieve outcomes favourable to their national interests, the outcome of which may be detrimental to another state or states. And then finally, uh, sorry, I should say it's not unusual for relations between states to dip between these two layers. They may be cooperating in total, they may be cooperating in some areas and competing in others, uh, and then they may be in their complete competition relationship. But then finally, at the very top of the pyramid, there is the smallest layer of all right at the apex, and that is of conflict, where a state will use force against another state to achieve its national interests at the expense of another state. And understandably, there's a very hard line between competition, the competition layer, and the apex at the top of conflict. And it makes sense that there be such a hard line, because if a state is in conflict with another state, in other words, at war, then it tends not to generally be competing or cooperating with that state anywhere in its relationship. So why is all of this relevant? Well, because it also reflects the very binary nature of international law as it impacts relations between states. In really simple terms, there are two legal frameworks, one, of, one that is applicable during armed conflict and one that applies to everything else, in other words, in peacetime. The areas of competition and cooperation are regulated by peacetime international law, but the top segment of that pyramid, the layer of conflict, is regulated by a completely different set of laws and those that are far more familiar to military forces, such as the ADF, and that is the laws of armed conflict. 
Now, some of our listeners will be very familiar with the laws of armed conflict, and it is this familiarity that I believe could cause problems if a state decides to involve its armed forces in the conduct of grey zone operations. But I'll come back to this issue shortly. There is a lot of law, and it is relatively clear, about what would trigger a right for a state to use armed force against another state, primarily the right to defend itself against an armed attack. Now, interestingly, you should flag that as an issue. Andrew, I can say um, there is a lot of authority out there that states generally regard um, that an armed attack can occur by cyber means. Um, and there was a statement made in 2018 by the UK Attorney General, which reflects the UK's position um, quite specifically on that. Quite clearly, uh, in Ukraine, there is very clear evidence that the Russia has conducted such an armed attack against the Ukraine using a variety of means, both kinetic as well as non-kinetic, and that has triggered a legal right for the Ukraine to use force to defend itself against Russia, including by attacking Russian territory and Russian armed forces wherever they may be in the world. But going back to the other two layers of our pyramid, cooperation and competition, this is what we're really going to be talking about today. International law does not distinguish between those two remaining layers. It applies the same law to both of them, and the law that, and the actual law that it is, is peacetime international law. So as I've said earlier, international law is binary in that sense. There is either armed conflict and force can be used, or it is not armed conflict and states must behave towards each other in a manner consistent with peacetime international law. So how does this all actually relate to grey zone? Well, without applying too strict a definition to the meaning of green zone, international lawyers could see it as referring to the very top competition layer of our pyramid. Those activities that don't cross over that very clear legal threshold to trigger a conflict, but could be considered to nudge right up against that threshold and potentially even test it. And this is where it gets very challenging, as Andrew has already flagged, for states such as liberal Western liberal democracies who abide by and promote a rules-based international order because unlike the conflict zone, where there is a lot of rules or laws that make it very clear what is lawful and by default what is unlawful, this is not the case for peacetime international law, where the law is far less clear and it is less certain what is lawful and what is unlawful. So let's talk briefly about some of the key prohibitions that we know exist in peacetime international law that are most relevant to grey zone activities. And I'll keep this in very general terms, noting that most of our audience are not international lawyers, and thank God for that. There's enough of us out there. The first prohibition that I'll touch on is the prohibition against the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. What does this mean in practice? Well, we had a great example in the lead-up to the Russian invasion um, where military coercion was used by Russia in the form of posturing its military forces along the Russian and Belarusian border with the Ukraine prior to its invasion of Ukraine. That was done largely as an attempt to intimidate or coerce the Ukraine. The second prohibition that I'll touch on is actions that would, a prohibition against taking actions that would result in the violation of fundamental rules of international law. Things like, for example, conduct of genocide or apartheid, torture, conduct of aggressive war or racial discrimination. So an example of an action that would breach this prohibition would be state-sponsored online information operations or cyber operations, which sought to incite a right-wing extremist group in another state to conduct physical attacks against, um, for example, Middle Eastern immigrants in that state. In other words, inciting racial violence. That would likely be a prohibited intervention 
into that particular state under international law. And the final prohibition or key prohibition that I'd like to touch on, and I'll go into this one in a little bit more detail because it's an emerging area of law and I think we're going to see a whole lot more discussion on this in, in future years, and that's a prohibition against intervening in matters essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of other states. It's complicated because aside from the words that I've just described, there's not yet a whole lot of legal understanding on what this actually means in practice. Even the phrase intervention is not yet clearly defined in law. So what do we know about this prohibition? We know that a prohibited intervention can be direct or indirect, for example, funding terrorism or opposition groups to depose a government. We know that the prohibition primarily protects institutions of state, so the legislature, the executive government and the judiciary, and it does not protect non-government organisations such as private corporations. But we're yet to understand how far this prohibition or the flip side of it, the protection under this um, prohibition will extend. As I've said, this is very much an emerging area of law and I can say that quite confidently because over the past weekend here in Australia, the United Kingdom Attorney General made an unusual speech which explained how the UK government is interpreting this problem. Now, I say it's unusual because international law is largely formed by state practice, what states do, and uh, particularly from Western liberal democracies, they've not been in the um, habit, shall I say, of speaking publicly about what their positions are as a matter of law. And that's particularly the case with cyber operations. I've already mentioned in 2018, the UK sort of break the tradition with its first announcement, well, it did the same again last weekend. And whilst the UK Attorney General's speech did not say so expressly, I personally believe that her statement was a direct result of Russia's ongoing grey zone activities. What the Attorney General did say quite clearly is that she recognised that she cannot begin to call out unlawful behaviour of other states unless the UK goes on the record as saying what it does regard as lawful. And that is exactly what they've done. So let me give you some examples that the UK believes would constitute a prohibited intervention by intervening in its domestic jurisdiction. And interestingly, all of the examples relate to cyber operations. So one of the first examples they gave was covert cyber operations to restrict or prevent the provision of essential medical services or essential energy supplies. For example, the disruption of ambulance dispatch communication systems causing hospital computer systems to cease functioning, or preventing the supply of power to housing, healthcare, education and banking facilities. How interesting when we compare that statement against the actions that are publicly um, alleged against, Russian, uh, against Russia in the Ukraine and also the Crimea. The UK goes on, and this is a big step forward in the area of law. The UK has also said that it believes that a covert cyber operation by a foreign state that coercively interferes with its freedom to manage its domestic economy or to ensure the provision of domestic financial services crucial to the state's financial system would also be a prohibited intervention. Examples that they provide include disruption of networks controlling revenue raising or taxation or disruptions of systems that support lending, saving and insurance. In other words, banking and insurance industries. Again, really interesting when you look at what's been publicly reported about what's been happening in the Ukraine and some of the cyber attacks against its banks and government platforms. 
The last area that the UK uh, Attorney General touched on in her speech, and this was a, a more established understanding um, in the realm of international law, and that is the prohibition against, uh, sorry, it's still prohibited intervention, but in democratic processes. So a covert cyber operation by a foreign state which coercively interferes with an otherwise free and fair electoral process would also constitute a prohibited intervention. Just to step away from the Ukraine at the moment, I'd like you to think of all about this point in the context of the 2016 US presidential election. If it could ever be proven that Russia had somehow influenced US voters using cyber means, then it was quite likely that it would be considered a prohibited intervention in the domestic affairs of the US by Russia. But as with all things international, it's one thing to be considered to have broken a law, but it's entirely another thing to take action to either enforce the law or to punish a breach. And in peacetime, remembering there are very clear limits on the circumstances in which a state can use force against another state, the repercussions if a state is found to have committed a prohibited intervention, in other words, to have breached international peacetime law, the very relative, uh, relatively limited repercussions can be taken. So I'll keep that really simple, and there's three of them. Reparation, retorsion, and countermeasures. Reparation is pretty much as the word means. It's compensation in some form for the wrong that occurred. Retorsion refers to unfriendly but still lawful acts by the aggrieved state against the wrongdoer state. For example, the imposition of trade embargoes, the withdrawal or limitations upon diplomatic relations, or the withdrawal of otherwise voluntary aid programs between countries. But it's the last action which is potentially the most serious one, and that's countermeasures. And they may be taken by a victim state against another state to stop a prohibited intervention that is ongoing. Now, the law sets out some pretty significant limitations surrounding the use of countermeasures. They cannot involve the use of force. They must not breach any fundamental aspects of peacetime international law. And any countermeasures taken must be proportionate to the wrongful act conducted. So that's the criteria. That's the really limited options that are open to states who believe that they have been the victim of a prohibited intervention that they could take within the international legal framework. But of course, before any of those actions can be taken, the internationally wrongful act or prohibited intervention must be attributable to a state under international law. And again, keeping it simple, simple is good, right? I'm certainly simple. In order to meet the international legal threshold of attribution, the prohibited intervention must be the result of conduct of either the government of that state, an exercise of governmental authority on behalf of that state, or a person or group of persons acting on the instructions or under the direction and control of that state. Now, that last one is really interesting in the context of, again, public reports that Russia frequently uses organised criminal gangs to undertake some of its grey zone cyber operations, presumably to try and introduce an element of plausible deniability. Uh, as to its involvement, but again, if uh, another state could show that those groups uh, were acting under the directional control of the Russian government, then that kind of makes it a moot point. So that's basically a very long way of saying three key things. Firstly, grey zone activities are regulated by peacetime international law. Secondly, there is a lot of uncertainty as to what states can and cannot do under peacetime international law. And then finally, even if a state believes state has international law. In order to take any limited uh, permitted responses against the aggressor state, 
the victim state must first be able to attribute the breach to the aggressor state. But let me go back now to a point that I made earlier about this different legal framework being challenged for armed forces if they are involved in conducting activities against another state in the grey zone. Part of that challenge arises from the fact that conducting actions against other states under peacetime international law is relatively new for armed forces. The ADF, for example, is very well versed in what its members can and cannot do during armed conflict. And it is also very well trained in what we can and cannot do in peacetime under Australian law. But we have a very limited understanding of what we can and cannot do under peacetime international law. And this lack of understanding could be very problematic if an armed force, such as the ADF, were tasked to start conducting operations in this grey zone. So being a military operational lawyer, let me give you a more specific example. Over the past few decades, the ADF has really refined its targeting processes for both kinetic and non-kinetic effects generated during warfighting. We're pretty good at it, right? But those same processes would be completely challenged if we were tasked to adapt them to generating non-lethal effects under a peacetime international framework. Terms that many in the audience will be very familiar with, such as combatants and non-combatants, protected objects, proportionality assessments, and even dual-use targets, are all terms that are directly derived from the laws of armed conflict. They apply to that very peak of the pyramid, armed conflict. They are suddenly meaningless when we start to talk about taking military activities in the remainder of the pyramid, which is peacetime international law. New frameworks and decision-making processes will need to be developed to ensure that whatever activities might be proposed remained lawful in the sense that they did not cross that very hard threshold between the two layers, conflict and competition. Armed attack is the more precise way of describing it uh, against a victim state, nor constitute a prohibited intervention, such as those examples I spoke of earlier. Which brings me to the last point that I really want to make, and it relates to the evolution of international law in this area. And a key thing for us all to bear in mind, and it's the principle of reciprocity. States need to accept that if they consider what they are doing by way of grey zone activities to be lawful, then they should also remember that it will be just as lawful for other states to do right back to them. I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much um, for the opportunity to talk today. I followed two incredible presentations there that have my mind sparking with ideas uh, and and um, and new thoughts on this topic, grey zone and hybrid war. For my part, I want to dwell a little bit on the cyber components of this. Um, but before I do, I want to just reflect a little bit and pick up a few themes from the other two speakers on what the grey zone is and what it means to us, particularly in this cyber context. And to me, it's worth remembering that the grey zone is not a place that you can go. It is not a geography. You cannot step physically in and out of the grey zone. It exists, and this is why it's such a fantastic um, topic for the code. It exists in the realms of the mind. It is an intellectual topic. And so if we can figure out the parameters of our grey zone, why our adversaries perceive in Western democracies, our grey zone to be uh, a certain shape and size, we can gain that intellectual edge. We also can do the work. We reflect so much on what our 
intellectual grey zone is. But we can also do the work of imagining ourselves into our adversaries' shoes and learning what their grey zones are. Because ultimately, uh, the grey zone refers to the way in which our own legal, normative, social, doctrinal frameworks are often used by adversaries against us uh, because they understand uh, where there are uh, gaps in our mental models or where our own mental models can be turned against us. So the classic example, as we've heard um, through um, Penny's talk then, is the binaries of international law uh, between armed conflict and between uh, the lack of armed conflict are often used by adversaries uh, to confuse us and to paralyze us and to slowly uh, potentially change the status quo over time in ways that are not consistent with our interests. Um, so before I get um, into the cyber dimension, I want to reflect on one other thing, which is that we've heard um, from Andrew a fantastic um, academic um, understanding, and we've heard um, from Penny uh, the legal understanding of the grey zone. I want to contend that those who understand the grey zone best in this world are not academics or even military people. They're not um, practitioners like me. They're actually kids. I think there is no better person or set of people who exploit intellectual grey zones more than children. And let me give you this example. I'm going to quote here from Tom Schelling, who is one of or was or one of the great strategic minds of the 20th century in the US. And he gives this example of a child, and I think this child is absolutely owning the grey zone. Let me read this quote to you from Tom Schelling. He says, tell a child not to go in the water and he'll sit on the bank and submerge his bare feet. He's not yet in the water. Acquiesce and he'll stand up. No more of him is in the water than before. He'll think it over and he'll start wading, not going any deeper. He'll take a moment to decide whether this is any different and he'll go a little deeper, arguing that since he goes back and forth from deep to shallow, it all averages out. Pretty soon, we, the parents, are calling on him not to swim out of sight, wondering whatever happened to all of our discipline. So children know how to exploit those grey zones, our, those gaps in, in, in our system of discipline and punishment to change the status quo over time. Now, what does this mean for cyber? And I said I wanted to think about the way in which grey zone manifests for cyber, and I want to do that in four ways, four characteristics of grey zone operations and how it plays out in cyberspace. And these are those four characteristics. One, in grey zone operations, and particularly grey zone cyber operations, uh, we deal with issues where uh, the action, sorry, that are below the threshold for a legal response. So that's the first one, below thresholds. Second characteristic, often cyber actions in the grey zone are deniable. It's hard to pin them to a particular actor or author. Third, they're often integrated. They use multiple elements of power at the same time to achieve their effect. And fourth, they're often incremental. They achieve their strategies over time. And that example, that little vignette of the kid going out to sea swimming, basically he uses all four of those as well. Now let's break it down into the cyber element. And what I'll also do as I go through is I'll explain why each of these characteristics of the grey zone works so well for authoritarian regimes, uh, because these uh, kind of gaps in our Western democratic ways of thinking. But what I'll also do to answer um, Andrew's provocation is talk about the way in which democracies can push back against each of these characteristics. 
So let's start out with below the threshold. And this is kind of the most obvious one. We've mentioned it a lot. If I asked you, when did Russia invade Ukraine? The textbook um, answer might be 24th of February this year. Um, and yes, we know that in the realms of cyber, a, a, a cyber activity that reaches the threshold of an armed attack is the same as a kinetic um, activity that reaches the threshold of armed attack. But actors often use cyber to go just before that threshold of armed attack. So I said, when did the invasion of Ukraine begin? We say the 24th of February, 2022. But I would counter to you, well, let's let's wind this back to 2014. So in 2014, uh, a cyber attack occurred in Ukraine by Russia uh, against the presidential election, against the very essence of democracy in Ukraine. Vote tallying was disrupted and delayed. Um, and there was a plot that was frustrated at the last minute, but a plot nonetheless. Um, to display the wrong uh, leader as having won that that uh, that election. Imagine if on the weekend um, in Australia we suddenly saw on all of our televisions on the ABC and Channel Nine, wherever you were watching the election, um, a far right candidate being touted as the winner instead of um, the actual uh, now Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese. That was 2014, 2015. A power attack, a power grid was attacked with cyber means in Ukraine. It was an outage um, and also a attack at the same time, a DDoS attack that against uh, the call centres of of the power set of the power companies to prevent citizens from getting information about why they suddenly didn't have power. That's pretty dramatic. It strikes again at the heart of society and of an economy. Um, the, the next year, another power grid attack, right, left Kiev without power for a couple of hours. Um, and since then, we've seen more and more um, cyber attacks against Ukraine, slowly perhaps um, confusing, demoralising, destabilising, disrupting the economic life, the political life of Ukraine. And even before February, again, we saw cyber attacks hitting Ukraine, not necessarily reaching the scale of an armed attack, not having an equivalent effect to launching a missile into Ukraine, uh, but disrupting, degrading, demoralising, website defacements, um, those types of things that, that get in the way, that put grist in the middle of democracy, of, of decision-making, political decision-making, but they don't necessarily meet those, meet those thresholds. That is the, the place where authoritarian grey zone actors like to play. So that's characteristic one, below thresholds. Number two, deniable. Um, we often see and we often hear when we talk about cyber operations that there will be claims made that cyber, it happens out there in the ether, it's impossible to attribute because it's happening via computer means, it's not happening um, in uh, a, a, a real way in, in the form, in the words of one former NSA director, a missile comes with a return to sender address stamped on it, a cyber attack doesn't. That problem of technical attribution is probably, well, is definitely over-exaggerated. Often it's easier for an intelligence community or indeed for experts, digital forensics experts uh, like those that I work with, to figure out where uh, the cyber operation may have emanated from. You do that by looking at their their tools, their tradecraft, their practices. But what's really hard is two things. One is figuring out the command and control. Who ordered it? Because often, and this is the characteristic of a lot of authoritarian regimes doing cyber operations, often there is a really interesting blend between um, military and intelligence officials and criminals and other proxies. And that's used to cloud who authorised it, who did it. There's a very cosy relationship, for instance, in Russia, between Russian organised crime, Russian cyber crime, and the Russian state itself. 
China also uh, often leverages cyber criminals. And to make things even more confusing, sometimes those working for the state moonlight in their spare time as cyber criminals to make a bit of cash on the side. So attribution can be really hard in that sense. But the second way attribution is very hard and often cyber operators are hiding behind a veil of plausible deniability in the grey zone is a concept of political attribution. It's one thing to know on a technical intelligence level who done it. It's a very different thing to be able to then convince at a political level or, or towards your society who did it without revealing those sensitive intelligence sources and methods. It's also very difficult because, frankly, this is a complex area and it's hard enough for those who work in the space to understand, let alone to make those cases in really coherent, public-facing ways. Now, I said I would say um, a little bit about what democracy can do about these difficult characteristics. And the best way to combat deniability is sunlight. And we see Australia and other democracies changing course a bit and doing this more and more. More and more do you see the Australian government standing up with other allies and partners and calling out, naming and shaming uh, those who are doing cyber operations against our interests. We've seen it in Ukraine. Uh, we saw it last year when China uh, was attributed formally for the massive hack of the Microsoft Exchange system. Australia stood up along with another, uh, along with a range of other countries to call out China's Ministry of State Security in that instance. Uh, we've also seen it in the realm of cyber-enabled operations, so disinformation and the like. Uh, then Australia's Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, uh, at the beginning of the global pandemic, uh, pointed the finger towards China, Russia, Iran and others uh, for being involved in social media disinformation campaigns relating to the pandemic. So there is a response for democracy and we're slowly getting used to pushing back using those democratic principles of sunlight and transparency with our population. So I said there's two other characteristics and I'll briefly touch on those. Um, so below threshold, deniable, third one, integrated. So to butcher a bit of Shakespeare here, when sorrows come, they rarely come in single spies, but in battalions. And so too it is with the grey zone. When we have grey zone operations, using cyber as one means, often there are a range of other means supporting that, cyber and non-cyber. So if we think about something like China's territorial claims to the South China Sea, China does that in an incredibly integrated way. It uses fishing militia, for instance, in the physical realm. It uses cyber operations and cyber-enabled operations and information operations and elements of foreign interference as well. If we think, um, for instance, about that information layer, we see... Um, examples of China's nine dash line, uh, that little dash line through the South China Sea that is China's uh, emblematic, emblematic of China's claim to the South China Sea. We see that turning up all around the world. We see it turning up in Hollywood movies, in uh, children's textbooks. It's a powerful informational campaign that China gets out there into uh, the public digital ecosystem. Uh, we also see uh, patriotic hackers sometimes being animated by issues with other claimant states in the South China Sea and using that as a reason to hit a critical infrastructure, government and other targets in those countries. So integrated. Now, what can we do about that as a democracy? Because authoritarians are quite good at pulling the levers of military, cyber, economic and other forms of power together. Well, the first thing is recognising it as a problem and to paraphrase a, a speech that CDF gave back in 2019 at ASPE called a Modern Political Warfare. He said that previously we'd seen a lot of these non-kinetic tactics like cyber operations uh, and propaganda and economic coercion as, quote-unquote, unconnected and only mildly irritating. 
So if we build a better picture of situational awareness that factors all of these in, understands the integrated campaigns of our adversaries, then we're on the beginning of the right path to addressing them. And finally, characteristic four, uh, that is incrementalism, right? So rarely in the grey zone do we see uh, adversaries um, reach out and try and go for an all-out grab, right? They don't go for a big strategic victory. They layer small tactical wins together in order to slowly change the status quo over time. Andrew mentioned the notion of a frog in boiling water. Um, so how do we respond to that? Because we know that authoritarian regimes, I think it's a misnomer to say that they are strategic grandmasters who have this all laid out over time and a big strategic plan that they're working towards. But they do have the ability to marshal resources in order to push um, a particular strategy and also to create strategic opportunity for themselves. They shape the environment over time so that when opportunity presents, they take advantage of it. What do we do to respond to that? And what might democracy do? I think it's about shifting how we talk about this and shifting the mental models that our publics use and our political levels use and also our militaries use to understand uh, what might be a threat, what might be a risk. And traditionally, we look for a smoking gun, right, to know that something bad has happened, a shot's been fired, an effect has been had. But when you're dealing with the world of incrementalism, there may well not be a smoking gun to point to because things happen slowly over time. It's very difficult to point out when the red line was crossed and by the time the red line is crossed, it's very difficult to get your adversary to course correct. So we need to change the way we think about risk and threat and we need to look more towards understanding contingent and future risks and threats and explaining that and motivating that to uh, those within our communities, whether that's a military community, a national security community, and those without it who have um, some interest and some ability to shape it, politicians, the public at large. Um, finally, let me just reflect then on what all of this means. So we see um, the grey zone being an area of, of contest and competition. We see it being very intractable, intractable intractable for democracies to deal with. And we see that authoritarians have a natural advantage. But I want to just come back to something that I said at the beginning, that those four characteristics of our grey zone are characteristics that we created for very good reasons. They reflect features of our rules-based rules order. They reflect the international law system that we have created. Um, they are not inevitable. They are not immutable. We can change and adapt to them. And critically, we can also find where the grey zones exist in the minds of our adversaries. We should, to echo back to something that Andrew said, in some sense look to live up to the promise that was in the Gerasimov Doctrine, which, of course, was talking about the way in which Russia perceived the West to be masters of the grey zone. We can and should live up to that. It doesn't mean that we need to do the type of tactics that authoritarian adversaries do. We shouldn't use cyber operations against civilian targets. Disinformation is something that doesn't coexist easily with democracy, but there will be other things that we can do, both to defend our grey zone and to find and exploit others. So I'll leave it there and I'm really looking forward to the questions. Fantastic. Thank you so much for those comments. I think they really helpfully framed the issues relevant to cyberspace and grey zone and how they interact. Um, we've been receiving texts with questions um, from across the army and the defence force more broadly um, from those watching online. And the first question I'd like to pose to all three of you, even though it has a bit of a legal flavour to it, is talking about um, what you were mentioning, Catherine, in terms of characterisation of that red line. So the question is, 
it seems likely that given the relatively low threshold of violence between states um, to amount to an armed conflict, that there will be grain zone activities that are regulated by the laws of armed conflict, but both states involved might want to characterise um, or not characterise the activities as triggering an armed conflict. So um, effectively, grey zone operations are conducted in a, in a context where technically we could be in armed conflict, but states may choose not to uh, officially recognise this. So what challenges does this potential mis misalignment of state characterisation and legal characterisation pose? Um, but also, I think, from a, a political perspective, if, if you could all, all touch on that question for me. And I might start with Andrew and then, um, then Penny and then through to Catherine. Thanks. Terrific. Um, it's a wonderful question and I will um, defer to my colleagues on some of the more technical aspects of it. The one thing that I will say is that um, <clears throat> the shared incentive that adversaries might have in preventing um, a conflict from escalating uh, is one that actually has fairly strong historical foundations. And I mean, to give an illustration of this, during the Korean conflict, it was well known, for example, that there were Soviet pilots that were active against uh, the United States and its allies in that conflict. And there was a very clear uh, decision to say, okay, well, we're, we're actually not going to make that level of covert intervention public knowledge. So I think the shared, the shared interest that adversaries might have in preventing um, increasing grey zone activities from reaching a threshold that would demand a greater escalation. I think that's something that's not distinctive to the current conflict environment. What I would say though, and where I think um, the situation has become more challenging, because we have a much more complex information ecosystem, um, it is going to be more difficult for adversaries in a state of heightened grey area um, conflict and competition to be able to actually um, preserve the level of secrecy necessary to prevent a greater popular awareness of this happening. And I guess in some ways, this is the flip side of Catherine's observation earlier that we do need to be more vigilant both as, um, as a government, but also as a people about the level of um, gray zone activity that's occurring. But at the same time, um, once you have that greater level of popular awareness, it's very difficult for the government to turn and turn on off that in order to um, control escalation dynamics. And Lauren, I'd add to that, and Andrew, really good analysis because it always, notwithstanding what the law might say, it always is very much within the realm of governments and the political parties that, that, that operate them to make the decision as to whether they want to um, seek to enforce or call out behaviour that might be unlawful. And that includes those really threshold decisions as to whether they will publicly announce a particular action that has been conducted against them to be an armed attack. And there's, you've already touched on some of those really good reasons as to why states might, might, not, might not want to do that. What I am seeing though increasingly is that, that particularly Western liberal democracies are starting to realise, uh, and as Catherine very um, eloquently explained, the need to bring the sunlight to bear on some of these issues. Um, and that's particularly the case, with, as I just in my, in my presentation touched on the UK, increasingly publicly speaking out to, to identify exactly what those threshold issues are in a very public way. Now, they've identified some of those really specific examples of this is, this is a red line for us in a matter of law. This is a prohibited intervention. And that's almost like you know, a public warning to those who might seek to take those actions against the UK, is that we will call you out as unlawful. 
And I guess I think we'll hopefully see more Western Liberal Democratic states adopting similar, more public um, uh, airings of their views and interpretations of the law to provide that clarity. Uh, and I can't help but use the analogy with the UK. And it's interesting, their, their long-held policy of strategic ambiguity when it comes to nuclear deterrence. Um, that's not working so well in this cyber domain and they're having to be far more forthright in their views and opinions. But over to you, Catherine, to sum this up far more eloquently than I can. Um, I think there it's a fantastic question. So it's the million-dollar question, right? And I think to, to draw on something Andrew said around how do you manage escalation dynamics, I think that's been a fear that's held us back from responding in a, in a kind of proactive way here. So when you're dealing with a grey zone um, operation, um, it's likely that someone's going to say, hey, uh, military, uh, DFAT, generate some options so that we can choose how to respond. And in general, those options either tend to be too ineffectual that they're not picked up or too militarised that they would lead um, escalation to get out of control. So there's a there's a pause for thought there. The other point is around um, the notion of deniability and its converse transparency. Um, if you do pierce that veil of deniability and you call out something, you do create an expectation that you will respond in a certain way. And again, I think that's held us back. There are examples where governments, Australian government and others, haven't called out um, bad cyber activity because it will create um, a sense that the government needs to do something to respond. And, and maybe, again, to keep control of escalation dynamics, that's, that's something that it doesn't want to do at that time. But again, I do think we need to flip that on its head um, because um, if we don't, the, the costs of not calling some of this out and not building a, a picture of transparency and a joined up notion of situational awareness uh, might be that while we think about the risks of escalation over here, uh, we miss a main game being fought over here. Now, that's not to say that we need to have a militarised option to everything and maybe the military's role in all of this is, is building situational awareness uh, more so than it is actually responding because there may be other tools at the government's disposal to respond. But I think we need to have a really um, thoughtful conversation about this because some of our, our fears and our risks that are known are easy to evaluate but sometimes we don't take into account risks that are a little bit more inchoate and harder for us to understand. Thanks. I think that is another great summary of the the issues that we're talking about when we're talking about how how states are starting to respond to these um, to these threats. So one of the other issues that's come out or has been made evident through this discussion is that attribution is not as problematic as it has previously been held out to be. Technology is developing so that states can be identified or proxies are being able to be traced back to um, controlling agents. Do we think that attribution um, is something we should be focusing our efforts on or does it not matter anymore? Does it matter if it's a proxy or is a state's becoming more emboldened to undertake these actions and put their names to them? So I'll, I'll go around the grounds on that one again, but I might go in reverse order this time, noting the, noting the time. So Catherine, what are your thoughts on, on attribution? So I'll let, again, you've come to the, the, the worst expert first here. I think I'd be really interested in what Penny has to say on state responsibility and some of the, the laws around there. From my part, I think when um, governments in the past, Western democratic governments have thought about attribution, they've thought about it in terms of deterrence. And so the question is, should I attribute because will it change the cost-benefit analysis of my adversary? And often the answer to that is it won't. So if we take the example of um, some of China and Russia's massive hacking sprees of late, Australia and indeed other countries coming out and calling that out and attributing it to those countries, it's probably unlikely 
to change the likelihood in the short term of whether or not they engage in them. So that's one way in which people have said, oh, well, let's not attribute. But I would flip it and say that attribution plays a different role that we don't think about sometimes. It may uh, not play into that cost-benefit analysis of the adversary so much, but it actually plays into your conversations with your allies and partners, um, helping them understand risk and, and being resilient. And it also plays into the conversations you're having with your own people and with your political uh, leaders as well. And in the cyber domain, which is my area of expertise, that is so important because often what we can do to prevent cyber attacks happening is build resilience at home. Most of those who have control of Australia's critical infrastructure and can do something about protecting it are private sector entities and they need to understand the risks that they face. So putting a name to a face, being clear about the intent and the capability of our adversaries to do us harm, that actually can help raise that level of national resilience because suddenly you have people prepared for it. So in that way it deters because it makes the price of attacking harder, even though it doesn't actually make the, in the short term, make the adversary uh, you know, feel chastened and go, oh, okay, we won't do that and, and, and not attack you um, again. Thanks, Catherine. Penny, thoughts on attribution? Yeah, so I, I want to be really clear that there's really different standards here. There's political attribution and they are, uh, other speakers have already touched on those where a government might decide to go public and announce that they are attributing this to insert a particular country. And then there's legal attribution and, and the lawyers will generally look for a particular standard of proof um, before they would be happy to attribute in the legal sense to, uh, to another country to against an aggressor state, for example. And those kind of boundaries are not really clear. It's another murkier area of international law, but I think we'll increasingly see more and more juris jurisprudence over the next few years that will help to clarify some of those boundaries. Um, We've already seen numbers of examples and we've touched on those already today where there has been that political attribution. I think the next step will be um, countries actually decide to start to exercise their rights under international law and maybe look to take those publicly declared things like countermeasures or, um, or retortions. Now, they may well have already been occurring. We don't know because so much that happens in the diplomatic world is done in the shadows and it's not necessarily made public and often for very good reasons too. But I wonder as we get closer and closer to sort of bumping really hard up against that hard layer of um, between uh, conflict and competition, whether we might start to see some pub more public announcements um, and the exercise of those lawful powers under the international law uh, and publicly declared countermeasures taken. Thanks, Penny. Andrew, your thoughts? Yeah, um, two terrific answers. I don't have a huge amount to add, but simply to reinforce a couple of points. Um, particularly Catherine's observation regarding the second order value of attribution in terms of strengthening um, the awareness of the nature of the threat. Um, and just to revisit what, what hybrid war intends to do, um, its goals are to weaken the unity of a target population and government, to corrode the resolve of a target government and population, and to corrode popular trust in institutions. Um, that's essentially what it's trying to do with a view towards eventually leveraging the resulting fragmentation to secure their objectives. So I think in that context, um, you know, I'd just like to reinforce Catherine's point regarding the importance of attribution in terms of mobilising not just whole of government, but whole of nation efforts to be aware of and respond to these as a challenge. Uh, probably the only other thing that I would add with regards to attribution um, is that it occurs to me that different regimes have differing levels of command and control. That, for example, you've got 
an extraordinarily centralised state like North Korea, on the one hand, versus a state like Iran, which has got a famously Byzantine and polyglot uh, intelligence and security apparatus. And I think potentially one value of being a bit more explicit and public about attribution is to say, well, regardless of the degree of regime coherence, we're just going to hold you to a high standard of accountability regardless. And I think that potentially has some value as well. Thank you very much for that answer. And um, unfortunately, looking at the time, while we do have more questions, I think that's actually all we have time for. So while we would have had, I think, quite a, a longer de- um, and more detailed discussion about this topic, um, thank you so much for providing your expertise on on what is a fascinating but critically important area um, of emerging operational focus for the ADF. Uh, and for those that are out listening, don't forget to follow the code either through their app, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Forcenet to keep across the latest PME content relevant to Army and Future Cove Talks. Thank you again so much for all of your time and for those differing perspectives on um, cyberspace and grey zone operations. And thanks again for joining us today at The Cove.